When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This, fine folks, is Be Real. My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We're back in action here, my friends. We took uh, some time away from uh, from the main feed here, but uh, I'm thrilled to see you, and you're thinking on your feet in a new apartment. Yes, indeed. I'm at the standing desk here in the studio, as we've dubbed it, uh, about five blocks south from where we used to record. You're either going to be 30% sharper due to circulatory system efficiency, or you're going to pass out halfway through the show. Well, you edit out my passing out and then prop me back up and when right. I stumble through the majestic, uh, <laughs> semi-delirious, you can piece it back together. So my friend, things are things are happening here in the, the late spring, early summer of 2021. Some What's happening? Have I missed it? I think no. <laughs> I think you've experienced it. People are people are trying to do things with their lives as we which things as we, I don't know move places, go outside. Um, yeah, have you been to a restaurant? Families, I have been to a restaurant. Sure, not you in, sat inside. No, it's still a bridge too far. No, um, it's fine. Any, it's fine. What I'm trying to say here, in the most sweeping of terms, is that knock on wood. Things might be on the uptick here, especially for movie theaters. Um, so Noah and I have elected, as theaters around the country are, again, knock on wood, reopening, um, to do a whole show based around movies that hinge on movie theaters. I think it's safe to say that neither of us have yet to go back to a movie theater. I have, I have been to a movie theater. You went in person? I went one of those outdoor <laughs> theaters. No, I I, well, I went to a press screening. How was it? Did you feel comfortable? Was it like returning to your house of worship, as I'm assuming it'll feel for me? A little bit. I have to say that we're. I feel like we're gonna we're gonna couch our remarks and like trying not to be overly sentimental as we talk about movie theaters here. But this is a, a sentimental category and. I have to say, I saw A Quiet Place Part 2, a movie that I thought was fine. And the level of engagement that I was able to have with it was, like, I'm just, like, behind my mask, like, mumbling, like, where's this going to myself? And, you know, ta- see, feeling all of these, you know, self-aggrandizing shots that John Krasinski is teeing up of himself and his literal family. And I'm like, there's <laughs> no way I get on this wavelength at home. I'm so glad to be back. Incredible. Yeah, I've yet to go to a theater. I'm a little nervous, too. Also, 
do I really want to go see A Quiet Place 2 or Nobody? Maybe I'll wait till something decent but comes out. what if you think it's fine? Then won't that have been a win? I used to, in another life, uh, at least twice a month, go into a movie theater and think a movie was fine for seventeen fifty. <laughs> but it's interesting because like, it was always in the things I would do, no matter how old I was from like being seven or eight years old to being in my early thirties, like I would go to the movies twice a month, like, like clockwork, if not more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think this podcast too has sustained my movie going nature. Um, but like I said, it's a, to me, it is, I think what other people get from being in the majesty of houses of worship. Like, there's something cool about going to a movie theater in which the exhibitor themselves like cares about the experience, not only of sitting there watching a movie on the latest technology and the latest screen or whatever, but also the aesthetic of like, you know, just how Martin Landau is describing the majestic, right. you know, this, this palace to this particular medium. Uh, and I've certainly missed that. However, I fear too, what I've been thinking about is that, and maybe you experienced this at your press screening, but I'm also, like, not sure if I'm ready to be annoyed by other people in public. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, am I going to not enjoy it because someone, like, pulls up their cell phone or, like, starts chatting to their neighbor or starts wrestling a hard candy out of of its wrapping? Like, whatever it happens to be. But maybe that... Maybe that's better than just being annoyed by the quirks of my new apartment that I thought would be perfect and is just pretty good. First of all, Werther's Fiends, just stay home. Stay Um, home. Netflix is for you. Yeah. You Ricola hounds. Um, I want to touch on a few different things you said, but what I was thinking about in watching these movies, the place that uh, standalone theaters have in small towns and with the comparison to churches, architecturally, they're one of the only buildings in a small town that is sort of aestheticized on the outside to um, represent or inflect the experience that you will have inside when you're there. And that's so rare in just like a run-of-the-mill American town, you know? I mean, I think it really says something about the the thing that's supposed to be achieved at that theater, regardless of like whether you are a cinephile. Well, it's interesting, too, in a more urban setting like South Brooklyn, there have been a lot of old movie theaters, which were very prevalent throughout the 20th century, actually turned into churches because Mm -hmm. it's the same kind of setup. It's a huge audience and then a raised stage at the front. There you go. Uh, So I think that is interesting, too, to see how these spaces with these big awnings and these big marquees have kind of been reclaimed uh and then some of the classic kind of theater venues like uh king's theater by us has been totally remodeled to the way it used to look when they did frequently show films there right yeah there's this sort of like um eternal peril and eternal restoration for theaters in america they're always just trying to get back to where they were 20 years ago yeah that's so interesting too and there was like that spate there was like the spate of in like the late 2008s, 9s, it was right around the Great Recession, um, where a lot of big movie chains consolidated and a lot of like beloved art houses closed. And there was also like that. Do you remember the marketing campaign for that Brady Stanellis, Paul Schrader um, with Lindsay Lohan? Canyons? The Canyons, yes, where like the whole trailer was unused 
footage that didn't appear really in the movie. I don't think that was like shots of like derelict looking like strip mall movie theaters being like, don't you remember going to see movies in the theater? It's dead, man. (laughs) And it's like, wow. So there is something interesting too about there being kind of every 10 years or so this reckoning for does the theatrical experience like have a place in contemporary society? And you know, there's been enough think pieces written in the past two weeks about oh my God. what this means for the movie industry. Um, we'll see. I maintain what I think I've maintained throughout this podcast, regardless of the state of the pandemic or world, that like make good movies and people will go to the theaters to see them. He's always said it and I've always stood up and cheered when he does. Um, so no, I think sort of incidentally, when I think about the three movies we picked today in this larger uh, subgenre of movie theater movies, I think there are three sub-subgenres. You have the movie theater as a portal to or from a movie. There's a lot of movies like that. You have a movie theater as like setting, half setting, or ambiance. And then you have movie theater as plot point. And so we're going to talk last action hero in the portal subcategory. We're going to talk the majestic in setting slash ambiance. And we're going to talk about the blob in terms of movie theater as plot point. There are a lot of others that frankly could have gone in any one of these categories and we could have selected today i i i won't even talk about what my regrets might be but let's talk about some of the movies that uh we're not discussing um anything you want to shout out at the top i think the big example that we didn't cover that comes to my mind is the woody allen film the purple rose of cairo mm-hmm. with which jeff daniels pops out of the screen yeah it's an early sort of star turn for him. Uh, a pretty charming movie, if I remember correctly, uh, in the Woody Allen space. But it doesn't feel like the time to reappraise one of his films. It does not. But um, but yeah, that would be... I the, uh, the original screenwriters of Last Picture... No, not Last Picture Show. Last Action Hero were like, we just want to do a reverse Purple Rose of Cairo, where the kid goes into the movie. And in uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, Mia Farrow is obsessed with this movie to the point that it, you know, it's the dream of being such a cinephile that you begin to interact on some literal level with the movie. A dream that goes all the way back to 1924 and Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. He's a, I mean, we've we've been having these sort of... um, uh, meta interactions with our media for as long since before the medium had sound (laughs) it's about the buster keaton character uh being like a lonely projectionist slash janitor at a movie theater and he wants to be a detective and he's trying to impress this girl and for the last two-thirds of the movie his his passion and his fantasy so overtakes him that he falls asleep in the projection booth and dreams himself right into the movie so it's so funny to be like i don't know what number post post modern we're on but We've been having the same dream since 1924. Um, we wanted to keep our powder dry on Inglorious Bastards, but that could have been in this category as well. Um, I mean, that's quite a that's quite a climax. It it a lot of these be- options that we have, including um, Peter Bogdanovich's first movie, Targets, um, the the indie slasher Blood Theater. Um, 
the opening killing at the beginning of Scream 2 kind of made me think about how you know, the, the dark side of going back to public spaces is what happens to Americans in public gathering spaces. Um, and it can be uh, uh, rather, rather violent and rather destructive. Um, and Targets is one of the scare. It's like a, I think it's based on like the UT Austin shooter a little bit. And it's this sniper at a drive-in um, at the premiere of this Boris Karloff movie. It's a great movie, but it's totally terrifying to watch and when you think about maybe talking about it on a podcast you're like shit going back to movie theaters means um you know being in public in america i hopefully it's not terrible it's a um, risk i'm willing to take i also want to talk about you know not everything is always uh sunny and transcendental at a at a movie theater so i wanted to ask you which experience would you least like to have in terms of bad movie moviegoers? Would you like to tell Max Cady in Cape Fear to stop eating his popcorn that way? Would you like to tell <laughs> Shonuf in The Last Dragon to stop throwing people into the aisle in the middle of Enter the Dragon? Or would you like to console George C. Scott at the end of Hardcore when I think he sees his daughter in that Paul Schrader's uh, imaginary porn movie. What do you think? I pick option D, which is getting into an argument with Robert De Niro's uh, Travis Bickle about not having jujubes at the, or chuckles at the fucking porno house in Times Square and Taxi Driver. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad we got to... What it, so actually a lot of those options were Schrader and Scorsese and De Niro related. What's wrong with those guys? Why are they doing this to our movies? Can I have a chuckle, sir? And uh, you have any jujubes? Uh, they last longer. I'd like to get some jujubes. What you see is what we got. This is not an exhaustive list. If anybody wants to shout out their favorite movie theater movies, you can hit us up on Twitter, berealguys at gmail.com. I'm sure we've forgotten stuff and left stuff on the table. But for now, you ready to dive into our main three, Noah? Last Action Hero, 1993. Yeah. With the help of a magic ticket, a young movie fan is transported into the fictional world of his favorite action movie character. It doesn't say this on IMDb, but colon Jack Slater. I've got a Prosky ticket. Um, Robert Prosky owns the movie theater where this young boy Danny gets a Harry yeah. Houdini ticket that sucks him into the movie a great classic comes to the screen take thy hand fair prince who said I'm fair to be or not to be not to be Columbia Pictures is proud to present the screen's greatest action hero, Jack Slater. Slater! Don't even think it, Slater, you hear me? This is the lieutenant governor. Slater, here's what I do. The governor gets here, call me. And Danny Madigan is his biggest fan. (laughs) Jack Slater. But tonight, a magic ticket. It's a passport to another world will get Danny closer to the action. 
than anyone ever dreamed. Holy cow! I'm in the movie! Who the hell are you? Don't oh, shoot me! I'm Danny Madigan, I'm a kid! And you're going with him. Who is this port? And where is that smile on his face? I don't even know this kid. To a world that's bigger than life. This ticket is magic, and it really works. And better than real. You really believe that you're inside a movie, don't you? Yes! The bad guys are in there. I've seen it. On screen. Could I speak to the drug dealer of the house, please? Have a nice day. Have him killed. No, you'd never seen Last Action Hero. I had frankly... I didn't even know what it was. I had, like, heard the title used uh, as, like, a catch-all for, like... I guess like self-aware action films, which is sure. what it is. Um, yeah. But I don't, I never interacted with it, which is insane to me considering that this is both John McTiernan, who is one of my problematic faves and Shane Black. I think it has taken a while to kind of outlive its, its flop status. It lost a bunch of money for the studio. Critics didn't like it. Um, but it's a lot easier 27, 28 years later to, um, you know, look, it's easier to look at all the movies that it's having fun with through rose colored glasses. I think if you were a critic who had just sat through Commando and Lethal Weapon knockoffs for five years, like this movie that is making fun of those things while also being them is is kind of like, this is... Sure. I didn't need this on top of the heap, but nowadays I don't care. Yeah, like, but the the pastiche that exists, like, retroactively as a, an artifact from like late '80s, early '90s totally. action movies, including making fun of movies that John McTiernan himself made. Like, right. there's diehard jokes, and there's the diehard like villain goes through the lens flare with the, like the bars from the Michael Kamen score to allude that much to it, which is, I mean, that's, that's the kind of Easter egg I dream of. So yeah, let's kind of work our way through the plot here and jump in. So, uh, Danny Madigan is like this, um, kind of latchkey kid in, in New York city whose, whose mother works nights, single mother works nights as a waitress. Um, and you just get this, you get, I think you get some sort of like generational commentary here, which again, like whenever we're just like these kids in their screens, it's like we've, th- these theaters are dying. Like we've been talking about this stuff for years. Like the first like four things Danny Madigan does in this movie is skip school to watch um, Jack Slater three at Robert Prosky's theater. He then goes to school where they're watching Laurence Olivier's Hamlet instead of teaching. And he comes home and watches cartoons. And then he listens to uh, rock on the radio while not doing his math homework. Like, I don't think it's an accident that this kid is just, you know, a media slave basically. Yeah. There's like this weird, like ready player oneness to this film where it's just like this guy go or this kid going through one hellscape after another just to, you know, uh, have media poured into his eyeballs. Um, yeah. And it's also funny because, like, this movie comes out and it definitely exists in what I'll call a Biggian New York City, uh, down to Mercedes Rule being the mom. She's, of course, the mob in the Tom Hanks movie Big. Um, oh, I thought you were saying... Like it was Biggie's New York. 
No, big like the film where Tom Hanks is the adult okay. with but he's a kid. Big uh, Ian, who could blame me for getting that one wrong? I, I totally understand. I'm, maybe Big <laughs> Ian's not going to catch on in the way that I initially hoped. Um, but what I'm saying is it portrays a New York that's like both completely safe and riddled with crime simultaneously. Sure. Yeah. So, of course, Danny like gets mugged but like has nothing stolen. Right. You know, and he like gets into these horrible situations, uh, but nothing really happens. And I would say like the cold open into well, the cold open is like a movie takeaway to remind you that this movie is going to transition into a movie movie in a little while. But I would say the first reel of this film is pretty long in establishing the, like the New York grittiness, but also doesn't do a ton of work in terms of establishing like the relationship between mother and son and the stakes here. It's really mm-hmm. just this kid and this old man and this old man being like, remember the power of movies? And then <laughs> Danny being like, kill him, kill him, gun, kill him. <laughs> Danny appreciates the power of movies, just some movies. Some movies. He's, uh, he's really into action fare. I think the main thing I have to say about this rundown theater in the middle of where in Manhattan do you suppose it's oh it's Times Square for sure it's it's in Times Square okay um, I like that it has I like that Prosky has like the midnight perks like I've got the I gotta do the test run on Jack Slater four tomorrow at midnight so come down for that but it also it kind of reminded me of like the growing up in Omaha Nebraska like the Dundee Theater before it was bought by film streams and it was really run down and it was kind of like whoever was there basically owned the theater Um, (laughs) whoever was working that day yeah it's what it felt like and that's like danny you know watching jack slater three it's just like he he doesn't it feels like he's in charge he's like the focus is off guys come on oh yeah i would say in this genre missing a reel uh, missing the reel change is like a big motif Totally. How would you go about parsing um, this movie in one of the... It's it's one of the trickier um, comedy slash earnest balances that we come back to over and over again on the shit. It's one of these half satires. And half satires get you into all sorts of weird trouble. How do you assess what uh, we're supposed to take seriously and what we're not? Well, I think the ingenuity of the Shane Black script is that the movie makes very clear very quickly that there's movie world and there's real world and there can be like overlapping objects and people from these worlds. So when we are, so when Danny's there, it's kind of like a cool first trick of, oh, we live in a world where the physics are kind of off and they kind of favor the good guy and like movie morality exists. And there is something funny about that, but I would argue, and maybe this is to your point that it's hard to sustain fish out of water in a movie world without, I mean, like for more than a like 20 minute sequence, whatever this is. Right. Um, And I think in that it's successful because it does land sort of the narrative stakes where you have like the Charles dance being the hired gun of these two rivaling mafia drug cartel families. Um, And you kind of know too, from the beginning, the dance is not, he like 
gets the he gets that he's in a movie too like he's kind of a step of ahead of everyone his performance too is just like pitch perfect for this movie he's having so much so much fun and then even with those eyeballs which like a normal actor wouldn't be able to pull off he's decorative glass eyes which like sort of change depending on his mood he can pop them in and out i understand you're interested in drug dealers yes jack that's him the henchman with the glass eye Sir, are you a henchman? No, I only go as far as lucky. Will there be anything else? Yeah, take off your sunglasses. Who's asking? The Tin Man. Well, Tin Man, suppose you hit the bricks. No, they're the wrong color. Are they? Oh dear, by all means, let's change them. Would arterial red suit you? I want to come back to this. The authorship of this movie is weird, though. So Zach Penn and Adam Leff first write the script as like a pure spoof that was actually inspired by some Simpsons spoofs. Um, and they're kind of making fun of the Shane Black, John McTiernan canon. They get basically sidelined by the studio. The, so the person brought in to write, rewrite the script is Shane Black, which is bizarre. They're just like, so then we watch this guy... We, we were kind of lovingly making fun of then sort of like write the script into a more basic action space. And then McTiernan has like sort of the same odd issue of like, am I making fun of myself here? Or am I like trying to do what I normally do? And then people brought in for punch ups after that, uh, including, but not limited to Carrie Fisher and William Goldman, who I think is responsible for sort of the more, um, Houdini, uh, Willy Wonka style golden ticket um, parts of the parts of the story, the more princess bridey parts of the story. Um, so that's just an insane number of people and sensibilities who took a run at this. But I think it was probably Shane Black who did one of my favorite things in this movie where Tom Noonan, who plays the Ripper, who's this crazy axe-wielding serial killer in the Jack Slater films, and then also uh, Charles Dance as Benedict, the 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 british sharpshooter their villain lines are so like dialed into both of those actors correct personas like tom noonan's dialogue is very reminiscent of how he speaks in manhunter yes he's just arnold's like i don't want to hurt you and he's just like hurt jack did you say hurt you put me in a cage for 10 years jack like it's such um it sounds very Noonan-esque. And then Dance's dialogue is also great, where he's just like, um, I want you to hit the bricks, like, get out of here. And Arnold's like, they're not the right color. And Charles Dance is like, do you prefer another color? Arterial red, perhaps? <laughs> the dialogue's really dialed in for the villains. No, I totally agree. And I think in those villains, the movie kind of finds its its narrative way. Because I would say Danny's pretty bad. Danny's the not kids- great. The kid's kind of annoying. Um, Schwarzenegger, I think, kind of takes it to an interesting level, especially he's, when he's, he's acting next to himself, which is pretty ingenious in 1993. Um, but yeah, I think when he realizes that he is uh, a movie character and then kind of tries on different hats, like he tries to be like a good father figure to Danny with his mom in that one scene. Right. And, but he kind of slips in and out of like, what does it all mean? Kind of depression, mm-hmm. which I think is a, it's definitely a departure for Schwarzenegger who you like, 
he's always like single-minded a purpose of killing something. And yeah. when he gets that taken away from him, it's almost an interesting play on that trope of a character of like, if he doesn't, can the movie be interesting if he doesn't have Predator on the other side of it? Right. His apart that's the scene where they go back to his apartment, which is very funny because it's sort of like making fun of the like, what does James Bond do at home kind of thing? And it's this garden level apartment and he's like maybe ten feet from the freeway and it's just empty except for a closet of his same color red t shirts and brown leather jackets. And a rack of handguns. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What is your favorite movie reference made in this movie? Bonus points if it's also a plot point. I think that F. Murray Abraham is very funny in this movie. Damn it! <laughs> As this slightly too friendly FBI co-worker to Jack Slater, who, of course, Danny recognizes from Amadeus, and he's just like, don't trust him. He killed Mozart. Um, but it's unclear whether Mozart exists in the Jack Slater universe, because... Then Arnold is like talking to his FBI friend. He's like, he says you killed Mozart. And the guy's like, Mo who? Mozart? No, I don't remember that. F. Murray Abraham is like, I have really, really enjoyed him on Mythic Quest. I I think he is very game to do comedy. And he's great in this for 10 seconds. I will then have to pick uh, Ian McKellen coming out of Seventh Seal to be the grim reaper to Arnold who gets shot and almost killed in the real world. Right. Right. I think also credit must be giving to uh, Frank McRae who plays the, the screaming um, police boss. He's basically making fun of his own character from 48 hours. The like, you know, the give me your badge and gun. You guys destroyed half a downtown kind of character. But He's doing the same bit that he does in the Loaded Weapon 1 spoof, which comes out the same year as this, and he's making fun of himself in both. But I actually think, I don't understand how he does the like gibberish screaming, which is like half unintelligible, but then half just sort of like mad Libby, my boss is mad nonsense. At one point he yells... I got the California Raisins up the Diary of Anne Frank doing cartwheels in a candy factory out here, and you're telling me that, like, <laughs> I don't know how Frank McRae does that. That's incredible. Yeah. I also think a really compelling sequence in this movie is when they are at the movie premiere, just sort of sort of showing off the star power that they were able to get for one day of shooting or whatever, including but not limited to Maria Shriver, as mentioned, uh, Jim Belushi, our our new buddy is Jean Claude Van Damme. Um, who else is there? Noonan as himself. Yes, double he is. Noonan. Chevy Chase That's gets right. bumped into and knocked over. Incredible. My big criticism of this movie would be um, that it overestimates how much quote unquote straight ahead action we really need. Like, and I don't quite know where this comes from. I might lay it at McTiernan's feet um, in terms of just him being like, but so here I just go ahead and do a normal 
John McTiernan action movie sweat set piece, right? Where the camera sweeps over the full LA block and then we, we blow a bunch of shit up, right? And part of it's him and I think part of it's the fact that just the studio did not want this to be a straight ahead comedy and I think it would be better if it was. Um, it's just at 210, it's too long. The, oh, it's definitely too long. The Italian, the mob family on top of the roof, that shit goes on forever. And I think the movie just misjudges the like, I, I think the temptation not to want to do a spoof is like, well, then we don't have anything real or we don't have anything sort of weighty or we don't have the, we don't have kind of the glitzy element. And I, I think that's a miscalculation. I think you, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger and that's all you need. When he is stomping on cars in the beginning of the movie and the movie of Jack Slater 3, that entrance, while exaggerated, basically gave me the same rush as the beginning of like T2 or something. Like you've got the guy and you've got the guy who's willing to do his imposing, unflappable thing in the movie. So just lean on him and shorten this puppy by half an hour. Yeah, I think that the sequence in the daughter's house where they like shoot the house to shit and then there's like the the um, car chase that follows it, like that's enough that you don't need what is essentially like the cold open of uh, Casino Royale where they're like on that construction site with the farty guy. Like that's enough right. to show you how ridiculous the sequence can be. And then, yeah, after that sequence, just cut to dance getting the magic movie ticket and then going into the real world to actually try out his movie skills because the real movie characters into the real world is the better half in my opinion would you agree with that instead of being somebody in a new world i think it's more interesting to have like a character with almost superpowers uh because they like know how to game the system by movie logic or whatever and it's a little it's edgy and weird as dance is like killing people in new york and he's like why is no Great one com- coming to help this person? And then he's like announcing in that booming, uh, you know, British theater voice, like, I've shot a man and I did it on purpose. And then nobody right. comes to assist. Yeah, somebody even tells him to be quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's way better because we have, I mean, we have seen it before in something like Purple Rose of Cairo, but like we haven't seen that specific thing before where, versus when Danny is in the action movie, the whole point is that we've all seen this action movie 80 times. So like right. there's only so much real estate in there. There's only so much oxygen in that world. Yeah, why don't we tell people how we rate movies on this show and then we'll rate Last Action here. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. What are you going to say, Chance? Bad good? That is what I'm going to say. Um, yeah, I th- I think you can't help 
it just goes it just goes on too long for me and i felt this both of the times that i have watched it and i think that it's cleverness it is very very clever in moments like even you know i love when arnold is just kind of like looking around for his own premiere at the end of like i gotta go save the day and danny's like there's so many theaters in this town like where are you gonna look and he's just like I, normally I don't have to look in my world. The bad guys just like sort of show up and kidnap me <laughs> to move the plot along. But I think the cleverness gets buried and larded down. Um, I don't think that makes it, that is more of a watch thing, but I think there is so, there are so many funny incidental things. It's easy to return to. I'm going to go bad. Good. I don't know. This is movie is just so like much like a movie, a movie palace, movie house with its, intricate ornate design like this movie like even them going into the police station and like seeing all these famous movie cops um like uh what's the guy from terminator 2 the robert liquid patrick. guy robert patrick yeah like having those touch points of you know late 20th century cinema in there to sort of say that all these guys hang out in one precinct i agree that they like if they spent the money on all those costumes and all that licensing, they should have spent more time like having fun with it instead of cutting back to a car chase that we've seen or a crane chase that we've seen a thousand times. But I still think that there's something fantastic about this movie in its excess and in its rewatch factor. Uh, so I think this one, sure, a little bloated. Aren't we all after COVID-19? Uh, I think this one is a good good. That's fine. Did you have that snobby mo- moment where uh, Sharon Stone's Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct was at the police station and you were like, um, that was San Francisco? Because <laughs> I, I had that moment. <laughs> That's so funny. I did, but I should have. <laughs> you should have. All right. Where to next, my friend? 1958, an alien life form consumes everything in its path as it grows and grows. Noah, how would you describe the blob if you weren't allowed to say blob? Because that's a challenge for some of the people in this movie. Yeah, is the blo- is is the word blob ever said in this film? I don't believe so. My favorite is when Steve McQueen is trying to describe it to Lieutenant Dave, and he's just like, "It's some sort of ah, some sort of mass." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, and then he just settles on it's a monster. There's like a monster yeah. on the loose. Oh, so how badly did he want to say Blob in that moment? This is one of those, like, old Paramount B movies that it's only, like, 72 minutes long or something. It's on HBO Max, by the way. Yeah, sorry, 86. It's an hour 26. But, I mean, compared to the fucking Majestic, at least, uh, this one feels merciful. Sure, sure. But, yeah, I mean, Um, I think the synopsis kind of sets it up. We're in this, like, idyllic American town. And we start with our horny young man protagonist who is just sitting in a car. It's Steve McQueen. Um, The oldest teenager you've ever seen. Yeah, he's like a 36-year-old teenager or something. I mean, many 29-year-old actors have played teenagers before, but not many who've like smoked as much and been out in the sun as long as Steve McQueen, who looks about... 36 in this movie he never he definitely looks like he's in his early 30s uh which is really funny because then they have to like age up all the adults so dave's like in his 80s (laughs) 
not true, but I know what you're saying. It is not true, but he's like, he, they definitely grayed his hair because it looks kind of sure. shiny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, it's Anita, Anita Carso. I don't know. As Jane. As Jane. Is that a famous actress? I don't think so. It kind of looks like, um, what's her name from Requiem for a Dream? Ellen Burstyn. It looks like a young Ellen Burstyn. Sure. Uh, she do, did a bunch of TV. She was on Andy Griffith and Matlock. And Gunsmoke. Any number of other Andy Griffith shows. <laughs> a lot of Gunsmoke for Anetta. Um, I think her biggest sin in this one is not actually seeing the blob until it's too late. Sure. <laughs> Because that's the weird construction of this movie, and you texted me about it, is this movie hinges on the premise that if a teenager says something, teenagers are so full of shit that the <laughs> society would not believe them. Dave! Doc Hallen's been killed. Doc Hallen? What happened? It's over at his place. you got to come now. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. Well, it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a mass that keeps getting... Bigger and bigger it. Every one of you watching this screen, look out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. I think the funniest, to that point, I think the funniest part of this movie is when... They're trying to explain why, like, the second police officer is, like, so anti-teenager. And, right. like, Sheriff Dave is like, well, they did kill his wife. And then they, like, move on <laughs> to something else. He you says something like, something? yeah, he's like, well, they did smack into his wife on the interstate. I think, like, the implication is that, like, some teen drivers, like, caused an accident that killed his wife. And then it's some great mystery why this guy. And then he goes into this kind of, like, PTSD monologue where it's like, they're testing me because of the war. Yeah. (laughs) So stepping back for a second. So this would be in the wave of kind of uh, atomic age uh, sci-fi B movies, as you said, where the, the blob is something that just arrives from another planet and it mutates and morphs as it kind of absorbs more and more. It grows and grows. People and life forms. Sure. Yeah. It amasses things. Um, I, yeah, I love people having and not having the language to describe what the blob is doing is a funny element of this movie where the doctor's like, Oh my God, this thing's nearly assimilated his entire arm. And I was like, wow, you really, (laughs) you really had the right verb for that. Didn't you doc? Yeah, well, he's horrified. And I think the only thing that really makes this pretty campy movie work is how much like the supporting cast is kind of buying into just the horror of looking at this, what appears to just be a lot of raspberry jelly, right. which I would argue is not that scary. I mean, yes, if, you know, a ton of raspberry jelly was moving towards me fairly quickly... But, like, they just, like, they can't even look at it. It's so right. horrifying. Um, I think the blob looks pretty tasty, personally. Much tastier than, definitely... the, than the 88 blob. We need as much toast as you can find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it hates to be spread out and eaten by me. <laughs> it's better served cold. <laughs> We've been doing uh, 
Albanese have become our new gas station treat, and this this blob looks what like is that? Like Albanese. Oh, it's just a brand of gummy bear slash worm. Oh, interesting. I they kind of remind the blob kind of reminded me of these like these Passover fruit slices that oh, like sure. they're left out in the sideboard too long. They kind of like <laughs> crawl towards the door. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. So I campy is a is definitely an operative word with this movie. Um the the camp is something that the audience would bring to it though. I, the movie is playing it incredibly incredibly straight. Like it oh, is yeah. just it is just the paradigmatic suburban 50s white pro authority um kind of like but can these kids get their act together and do the right thing sort of like nobody in the movie is goofing off or playing it big i don't think and frankly steve mcqueen um the way he's like tugging at the end of his like long shirt sleeves he looks like he would rather be like shipped to siberia than be in this movie any longer he i think he looks like he's having a terrible time yeah he really doesn't appear to be happy to be there uh and it's unclear if that's a performance or that's just like his state of mind he looks like in this might be a deep cut, but when Idris Alba briefly becomes the manager of Dunder Mifflin in like season five of The Office, and he makes Dwight wear long sleeves, and Dwight's like, "It's a fucking straitjacket! I can't get it on." <laughs> and that's like how Steve McQueen is dealing with his costuming in this movie. That is incredible because um, we know we can have fun. You know, Bullet, he's having fun. Even Towering Inferno, the fact that he's not in that Inferno, I think he loves. Sure. So let's talk about why we picked this. This would be our kind of movie theater as incidental plot, but also it's a pretty iconic um, scene in terms of like horror movie, you know, something horrible happening while kids watch a horror movie, which is a common occurrence in the in the last century of horror movies. So they're they're all gathered around at the theater on a Saturday night. And I think they're watching a, a movie called uh, Dementia, which was then recut and and re-released as uh, as Daughter of Horror. And you see, there's a Bella Lugosi movie, which would have been uh, Mother Riley meets the Vampire for all my for all my Bella heads out there. That's also on the marquee. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, well, I think it definitely is intentional that the moment at which, because like the whole tension of the first two-thirds of this movie are that the adults don't believe the teenagers that there's a blob eating things and people around the town but the moment at which it becomes real and then they have to figure out how to fight it is when it overtakes a movie theater and that feels sort of by design you know this idea that people would come screaming out of something that they've gone in for for entertainment's sake to realize that it's it's real and it's in the world um and it's it's coming down the street yeah, and I mean, historically, too, like, where are our gathering spaces for a healthy small town? Like, where would people be on Down on the Bijou Theater. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's kind of what what I was thinking about, too, when I went on this, like, reporting tour of rural Nebraska in, like, 2014. And the number of small towns, you could really take the temperature of, like, where the town was at in terms of its own revitalization and sense of itself by like 
how had they treated its old school theater that was like built in the 30s and had it been kept up or had the sort of agricultural crises of the 70s and 80s just like shuttered that thing forever. And it was real hit or miss depending on the town. And you could really feel like, was there a healthy open theater? Because that town was doing okay. And if it was the other way, that town wasn't. Um, and I think that's what's happening in, in, in whatever Pennsylvania little town this is. What I love about this movie, too, is that it's an accidental climate change horror movie. And is it's also kind of a sequel to The Thing. Um, right. Well, it's like a it's like an it's always in sunny in Philadelphia title card at the end where they ship the blob. The end? To... Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, they drop the... off. Yeah. Yeah, they ship the blob. No spoilers here, but they, they ship the blob to Antarctica to, to be on the ice. Arctic. Oh, the Arctic. North. Yeah. And oh, somewhere Steve cold. Mc- Steve McQueen's last line of the movie is just like. It's not dead, is it? Lieutenant Dave's like, no, no, but we're going to get rid of the thing. And Stephen Queen's like, well, as long as the Arctic stays cold. And then (laughs) the credits roll. And, you know, us here in 2021, it's a bit of an oh shit moment. Yeah, Yeah, in 20 years, you'll be able to go visit the blob uh, on your next Caribbean vacation up in the North Pole. If I have a criticism of this movie, it has nothing to do with the blob. I like the blob. I think that, you know, it doesn't bother me how silly and gelatinous it looks i could have gone for 400 percent more blob frankly what bothers me about this movie is that it is probably an hour and five minutes of just like not very good actors asking really inane questions like you kids see a dog run by here or did you hear back from that doctor over in wilsonville yet um just like really extraneous plot stuff about that will maybe get us a little closer to the kids being believed about the blob, but right. not a lot of blob. Yeah, it's a lot of convoluted questions followed up by like a lot of theories that are not based in any data points that the movie, like no. when when Officer Burt's like, oh, well, the room, the door's locked and the window's shut. The kids must have used string to close it up. It's like, <laughs> what? That's, that's Why? And then they came and ran and found you? Why? To show you that they could do it? Yeah. Come on. Some funny, very funny to me. He's bitter that they killed his wife. Sure. And rest in peace, Mrs. Burt. Sorry that you were splattered out on the highway like some sort of mass. Um, She looks like a pudding. (laughs) An ooze. She's an ooze. Very funny to me how much of the dialogue is the cops just being like, well, can we just, uh, let's just put this puzzle together tomorrow. It's like the cops are so excited to call it a night, which is funny. A lot of the movie is completely unironic. Uh, Men, a woman being like, hey, is that the blob? And the man's like, calm down. Don't look at it. Calm down. Don't ask any more questions. (laughs) Right. Let me manhandle you into the freezer real quick. Yes. Um, yeah. I think while this movie is also a climate change film, it's also a pretty strong defund the police argument. The police are very bad in this movie. Although it is there the kids have a conversation after they've been like pulled over for drag racing backward where they're like, "You know, Steve, police ain't so bad. We're just trying to keep order around town." <laughs> it's like, "Okay." Right. But then I would say that Steve McQueen kind of 
throws a wrench into the system where he's like, we tried to go through normal channels. Now we just have to honk <laughs> our horns and set off the air raid <laughs> siren ourselves. Do you want to do 40 minutes on the blob as McCarthyism? And then I'll do 40 on the blob as communism. And then we'll see who is more believable. The only thing that this movie is lacking is a 30-minute sequence in which the blob testifies in front of Congress. <laughs> of course, I assimilated your wives and dogs, but is this not a democracy? Doesn't the First Amendment allow me the right to suck up people into my mass? And you, blah, 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 ban. How dare you talk to me that way? <laughs> yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Bob Balaban's in the next film. Um, <laughs> um, the Blob is not terrible. I kind of wish Ooh. it was maybe more terrible to maybe yeah, get I, us I, to get us to a bad good more comfortably. I'm afraid by our rating system, Noah, that the Blob might be bad, bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I had the feeling that a lot of the characters had when the blob was rushing towards them at what speed unclear. Uh, but that this thing was, this thing was, it was coming and it was bad. Um, I think bad, bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could all, I could go for more kills. I there did seem to be that funny movie morality where like there are two mechanics are working on a car late. And the one who's just like, I'm the drunk mechanic and I don't like my wife. And the other guy's like, all right, I'll see you on Monday, Joe. <laughs> like, <"He's> the... <laughs> the drunk mechanic who doesn't like his wife is the one who gets blobbed. And I could have gone for more of that, you know, but just so yes. much of people talking and being like, you don't believe me that there's a blob. And it's like, well, hold on, son. I believe you. It's just, you know, I'm not sure there's Why a blob. Why would I make up something like that, dad? Pop. Oh my god. Yeah, it it really does kind of go all in on like the f- old man, the old timer getting blobbed at the beginning and then is like his arm kind of looking like a like a dinosaur you put in a thing of water that blows up. I um, think that's a pretty cool effect to be honest. And I think it's, it's a pretty like, cool effect, but yeah. there really aren't any other like blob on human body horror SFX to no. speak of. You want to talk about the Majestic? Do I ever? No, would it surprise you to know that this we watched the Jim Carrey testifying before the Joe McCarthy kangaroo court. We watched that scene in ninth grade history class to learn about McCarthyism. I think that just speaks to your Midwestern public school education. Well, what did you watch on the East Coast? Trumbo? Yeah, probably Trumbo. Uh, no <laughs> chance. Trumbo wouldn't be released for another 10 years. So you must have just watched Spartacus then. What did you, how did you learn about The Blacklist? Oh, The Blacklist. Interesting. Um, good night and good luck. Ah, okay. That came out while I was in high school. There you go. Went to New York to see it in a movie house. One of these movie houses? One of these art houses they're talking about. <laughs> Let's, why don't we start here? Why don't we start with Frank Darabont? And his three-movie run from Shawshank in 94 to Green Mile in 99 to The Majestic Until he backed up the dump truck of money that was The Walking Dead? Yeah, I mean, good for him. But doesn't this movie feels like the long-winded 
American folk epic that is sort of like those other two in a way. But he's running out, he's run out of Stephen King to adapt and he's moved on to, I want to get this right, his high school friend Michael Sloan. <laughs> oh, yeah, creator of the TNT hit original series uh, Mob City. He's really trying to do the same thing at the same clip as he did with Shawshank and Green Mile, but I. <laughs> It's, Tell this a is story the, very, very slowly. This is the end of it, for sure. Yeah, until, like, aren't all these movies set in the 50s, basically? Uh, yes. Yeah, but this one is not written by Stephen King. The Majestic, 2001. In 1951, 50 years earlier, a blacklisted Hollywood writer gets into a car accident, loses his memory, and settles down in a small town where he's mistaken for a long-lost son. Peter Appleton has lost his way. What in the hell happened to you, son? I'm not exactly sure. In a place he's never been. Have you ever been in here before? It's just that you look sort of... Familiar? I said the same thing. With no memory of his past. You have no idea who you are or how you got here? Wink. He will be mistaken for someone he never knew. It's Luke! Luke is Great to have you back, sir. Luke, having you back among us was like a miracle. Do you remember me? No, but I'll sure try. Tell me about this Appleton. His agent reported him missing last night. Nobody's heard from him in four or five days. You find him, gentlemen, living or dead. From the director of the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. I'm trying to make up my own mind about you being Luke. We were in love, weren't we? You've got to remember that. You've got to. I don't. Let me ask you this, Chance. If you were to create a film about... In night set in let's say instead of the nineteen fifties, where someone someone presumably died in World War II, which happened nine years earlier, uh, and that person's name had to be uttered by literally every character and every line that they had in the whole film. Wouldn't you make it something less stupid than Luke? Herb. Herb would be good. By- Byron. <laughs> Yeah, Byron's good. Mank, maybe? Luke just feels like a product of the early 2000s. Like, Luke is a character on the OC. Luke is not a character in the Frank Darabont historical fiction, The Majestic. Yeah, I'm with you. I hear that. I mean, biblical name, but I'm with you. Then call him Lucas. Sure. Okay. Did you like my welcome to Lawson bitch joke? I... (laughs) Because I felt like I just... I missed it over the sound of my own voice. <laughs> well, I shouldn't do my best material underneath your good points. Yeah, stop um, mumbling. <laughs> so Jim Carrey is is Peter, the, the screenwriter. Um, and he is right in the sweet spot here, or perhaps not such a sweet spot of really trying to make a fuck ton of movie with or fuck ton of money with broad comedies and then being like no 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 but i can be serious so he's jumping back and forth here between like 
uh, Truman Show and Liar Liar and Me, Myself, and Irene and Man on the Moon and uh, Bruce Almighty in this movie kind of thing. It's incredible to me that he... The, that he does this movie and then he does Bruce Almighty two years later. But in this movie, he's playing late 20s, right? Because like 18-year-old yeah. goes to war, dies nine years later. He's yeah. got to be like in his late 20s. And then in Bruce Almighty, he's like 42. Right. He's, he's like late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, he is age appropriate all of a sudden, uh, which is so interesting because it feels like a movie that was made like a decade later. But in fact, only two years. Let's... Let's endeavor to assess this Jim Carrey performance a little bit, because I think you and I have both spoken very lovingly of his more serious performances in Eternal Sunshine and Truman Show. Um, and this one does not work for me in the same way. What is going on here, Noah? I don't know. Uh, I, I have the same issue as you do, because it's like a little bit, Truman show but he like never gets to do the like crazy everyone around me is acting normal but it's not normal like paranoid schizophrenic thing but that isn't that sitting right there like you were texting me last night like all the different things this movie could be um what if this movie just leaned into more like the artificiality of a town that's looking for a dead hero that thinks he's this guy and he's this sort of like prodigious yes. screenplay writer who can just kind of like write his way into matchmaking people in the town and matching himself up with widows and updating the town in his full cinematic uh, imaginary movie glory. Like he so easily could lean into more Jim Carrey things here. Yes, this movie could make so many more interesting choices. Uh, whereas like I think there's a better movie where... Yeah, same setup. Blacklisted writer, goes on a drive drunk, crashes, loses his memory for maybe 36 hours, and in that time is embraced by the town. He then remembers who he is, but continues to play along with it, making that choice that I am duping these people into believing that I am this prodigal son. Uh, And then it makes it a more complicated film. And then I think, too... What I have a problem with in this film is that there's really no pushback from the whole town. Like, this whole town just is just like, yep, this guy who looks kind of like this picture of this guy from nine years ago who's dead. uh, That's fine. He's him now. And really only one guy is sort of like muttering under his breath like, it's probably not him. Yeah. But other than that, like, I think a more interesting film, like, has a contingent of people who are like, you're nuts. And then there's like that battle between people who are like have clear eyes about them but don't want to believe this thing that is in fact causing good stuff i would say net to happen in this town uh but it's a lie and i think that's a more interesting movie about the the way in the 80s and 90s we look back to the 50s and 60s as like a wow wasn't it great like let's try to go back to that uh with our economic policy but then you have a movie that's kind of filled with this thing of like, it's all propped up on a lie. Like maybe it felt good for the upper middle class, but it's all a lie. Right. Yeah. Um, it becomes, but yeah, Jim Carrey doesn't get to scream either. And that's a, that's a disappointment. And if you, if you reworked it that way, like there's this great moment in the movie that's kind of understated where, 
the town's most talented musician is this guy Spencer who plays like big band clarinet at all the things and people keep saying to Jim Carrey like Luke we think you're Luke yeah you know that was your clarinet but uh um you know you weren't too good at it and he's just like so I gave it to Spencer your screenwriting instincts are filling in these narratives of the town um right because life isn't that complicated and like this is where his stories come from um and there's a moment in the movie that reminded me of you too, Noah, where uh, Peter, the Jim Carrey character, is is sort of um, cavorting around with uh, Laurie Holden, who plays Adele, um, who is Luke's widow. And now she's like, are you Luke? Should we get back together? Well, not, she's then, not a widow. She's his high school girlfriend. Oh, they were never married? No, he was 18 when he left. He hasn't, she hasn't, nobody's okay. seen him since high People school. People got married at 18 and... 1944 whatever they did not get married she just like only held a candle for him and then he died at 18 and then she just like never had an adult romantic life she's been not sitting under the apple tree with anyone else but he for nine years well she's been going to law school that's been keeping her busy that's true a thing that doesn't come into play in a movie that has a courtroom scene as its climax well she gives him a copy of the constitution that's law yeah, she gives her like the. It's like what they give you when you get bar mitzvah. They give you like the little book as a as a way to keep it. Well, that's what they do when you get out of law school. They give you a copy of the a leather bound copy of the Constitution. When she handed him a gift on his way to go testify, and he was like holding it in his hands, I'm like, if this is a copy of the Bill of Rights, I'm gonna lose my fucking mind. Um, it, and it and lo, it was, wasn't just the Bill of Rights; it was the entire Constitution, all twenty five or whatever exists, however many existed in the early fifties. Um, it might have been 27. I don't know. So this moment where they're kind of like warming back up to each other, he was talking about, I think, Life and Times of Emile Zola. And she's like, well, you remember movies, but you don't remember your own life. And I was like, that's the thesis of this podcast. Thank you for bringing it up, Adele. Um, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but but hey, again, I remember the, all my trauma. Uh, well, um, but again, there's that thing of like, well, how about this guy who's like religion is movies who's like filling in the blanks of this world because of his obsession with his profession and instead the majestic as i said at the top falls much more into the like movies as ambiance kind of um plot thing because the fact that he luke's dad played by martin landau owns a theater called the majestic um that they like fix up and gets back on his feet is sort of important because he was a screenwriter and it ultimately shows the movie that he wrote that jogs his memory. But like that didn't have, it doesn't have that much to do with going. It's closer to the blob than it is to last action hero. Yes. And of course the contract that you sign going into this movie is that you're going to be treated to an HGTV montage of them fixing up the bombed out movie theater, uh, which I would say is pretty good i thought it could have been better you know there's like oh they like mess with the fuse box and at first it explodes and then they fix it and it's beautiful and they move some chairs around and they paint a few things and they like hang up the screen from an old thing that's on top of some gift from roosevelt or something is that supposed to be luke unclear um but yeah i would say it definitely loses points in my book for not being a more satisfying renovation film. What what were you looking for? What did you you wanted like less testifying carpet? in front of Bob Balaban <laughs> and what's his fucking name? Hal Holbrook. And Hal Holbrook 
and more replacing bulbs like in lights more like restocking the candy maybe like installing a new popcorn machine and having it pop for the first time that'd be nice these are all options sure the fact by the way the fact that hal holbrook and martin landau and james whitmore are all in the same movie is like really like the identical spider-man meme like in triplicate of this is there's just so many white-haired 80 year old character act like this movie really belongs in a nursing home it's almost like they sign them all up and they kind of like fit them into the parts that they were like alive to play it's like if hal holbrook doesn't make it to the supreme court scenes we'll put martin landau there and then we'll shift balaban over to the dad they all easily could have played but Whitmore, not Balaban. Are you with me? Brooks from Shawshank? Oh, yeah. Easily Whitmore, could have played like the, the Landau part. Even the doctor, okay. David Ogden Steers, he could have been anyone. He definitely could have been like a bastard politician. For sure. I wish this movie was a little bit more state and Maine. Like these country bumpkins, like don't imp- like they're so stupid. Like there's something like offensive by how stupid and gullible this town that's like lost. Like they a don't bunch of people died. People? They don't recognize people, and you're supposed to think that the trauma of losing like sixty young men nine years earlier has left this town in like Arrested Development, waiting for some messianic character to show up and lo Jim Carrey out of the water uh, to save them all. But like, that's insane to me. Just the premise of that is insane without a little bit more like intention without someone trying to pull the wool. And then what I think is even more bizarre is the ending, which I think we can spoil where he like shows back up to the town and not only has the girl he accidentally duped what are you saying with your hand gestures i was clapping like the people of lawson do for peter oh yes the woman who was accidentally duped into like perhaps having a sexual relationship with this stranger is not only is she there but the whole town is like you're as good as luke was we'll take (laughs) you anyway we don't care who you are you know you're a famous screenwriter and you were on the television box (laughs) That's not real entertainment, though, as Martin Landau tells us. It came out after 9-11? It was clearly made before. I, I don't know. It's, just, it's like this... <laughs> the o- only way to explain this movie is that it was pre-9-11. Well, you already mentioned... No one uh, would have the arrogance to put out a film like this post-9-11. Nobody fucking cared about making an ode to the silent generation um after 9-11 um again this is just this is again darabont like running just running out of rope here um on this on these two and a half hour like mid he'll have the last laugh don't you worry listen he's doing great um i think that i had just had a weird feeling watching this movie too of like i it made me feel like we'd directors by this point had run out of ways to shoot jim carrey's face to be honest with you just like he would always seduce people into close-ups and i think like even when he like starts raining and he like looks up at the rain i'm like this is the exact exact same facial expression from truman show um like we just the, the movie itself just ran out of ways to make jim carrey interesting it's just the treacliest shit we've ever seen it goes on forever i will say that i watched it um, right at the peak of my vaccine dose two hangover. 
and I was just kind of like barely awake. Perfect timing. Having the chills, and I couldn't even, and I, I had an okay time. Um, but if I was like, you know, checking, had an email to check, um, two hours before or after, I would have been so mad about the two and a half hour runtime. I can only imagine what you went through. Yeah. Well, I watched the first two hours of this film and then someone shouts from off screen, you got to testify in front of Congress. And I was like, 36 minutes still to go. I'm going to pick this up in the morning. And that's what I did. And it was fine. It's the way it should. That's the natural intermission place. I do want to give props for um, Sand Pirates of the Sahara, the movie that Peter Appleton has written that is comes on like, you know, like slow third run distribution up the up the PCH to this to this town of Lawson and eventually jogs his memory. Um, it's uh, it's cut exactly like an Errol Flynn movie would have looked with like Bruce Campbell as the swashbuckling European and and Cliff Curtis as like the Orientalized chic. Um, <laughs> and it's in terms of like. Uh, you know, spoofs of movies in movies of golden age Hollywood. It looks just perfect the way the actors are like leaping into the light. It's beautifully done. I'm glad we get to see it twice. Yeah. What's, what's sort of funny about this movie is the amount of money it clearly has at its disposal. Oh my God. Like it can do things like that really, really well. Um, but then again, like, you know, you don't need to build Lawson. You need to give us a better script and yeah. perhaps a better cast. Um, a, I love that the bookending scenes where you hear the voices of the Hollywood executives, but you don't see them are like Sidney Pollack and Rob Reiner. Are they? And Gary Marshall. Um, That's funny. I like that too. But what's the name of the the magical black guy who lives in the theater and has been waiting nine years for his pocket watch. Oh my God. The character with the character's name, I will never forget because it's Emmett Smith, which <laughs> <laughs> that would be like, if you put out a, a movie in 2001 called the majestic and they're like, what's the only black character's name? Well, his name is Scotty Pippen. Um, <laughs> his name's Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Emmett Smith. Come on. He had like just run for 1600 yards. Incredible. Yeah, there's something maybe like racially oh, problematic about yeah. Emmett Smith. Um, Jerry Black is the actor. Um, yeah, and that again, that felt like a just a holdover of the '90s, reminiscing with rose-colored glasses on the '50s. Like, yeah, there's one black guy in town. He loved it. <laughs> <laughs> he had a great, great damn time. Uh, <laughs> oh, sweet that's incredible. Jesus. Um, I get what it's doing. It's trying to do like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But that's the worst part of it. Right. Well, I mean, just watch Mr. Smith goes to Washington. If you, if you want to watch that, this is two and a half hours of, I I think it was Kenneth Turan at the LA times had a takedown. I loved in from his review at the time where it was like, this movie couldn't be more simple minded if it tried. And that is yes. that's it that's it even it's like one even down, jim carrey's stuttering speech ended communism right and it's and it's so-called political convictions are just garbled nonsense the blacklist like, wasn't great <laughs> but it was easy to get out of if you just held to your principles blacklist wasn't great 50s mostly were do you believe that 
Uh, even the the line that really infuriated me, even in the midst of my uh, vaccine hangover, was uh, Adele is like, she's like, so are you really a communist? And he was like, no, I don't think so. And she's like, yeah, only a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist could have gotten the Majestic back up and running. What did he do to get the Majestic back up and running? He went to the town's central government and asked the collective That's to donate handout, yeah. goods and labor. <laughs> It has nothing to fucking do with capitalism. It was a socialist ask on his part. Wow. What a red movie this is. Yeah, and I would be, of course, fine with that. Just know what you are, the Majestic. This movie is, uh... I, I had an okay time watching it in a daze, but, like, by... In our podcast conversation, it's completely bad, bad. No, it's dreadful. Um, it's so bad that I'm surprised that people like conservative people don't use it to like make fun of liberals because it's like just postures <laughs> as such like like a simple minded yeah i don't even true. know Feel it's like free. yeah what is this the majestic if someone starts like prattling on about like socialized health care like, what is this the majestic <laughs> that's what i'm going to start saying to people uh, and see what what they make of that interesting this is ba- unquestionable bad bad this is maybe uh, bottom 10 on the podcast for me. Wow. Majestic is a very... It's just so boring. It's just such a waste. It's so boring. The movie makes no choices. No characters really have any agency. So there's no tension. And there's no like, oh, when is he going to get exposed? By not, uh, you know, these these anonymous FBI agents who we know nothing about? Great. But didn't it just make you want to go to the picture, Sonny? Cagney and Stewart. <laughs> well, my friend, I hope that a good-looking movie gets you back into a theater soon and you you go for your... What's your... Mike and Ike's? What's your go-to candy? Well, now that Sour Jacks have been discontinued, I uh, have to settle on the, the mix of Sour Patch Kids and Raisinets. And you're always good for a ginger ale at the theater. Oh, hell yeah. Like a big I, one from those like crazy machines that they have now where you like have to play with the touch screen to get there. Wow. Even like a little bit of like ginger ale with some lime in it. My God. That thing could probably take your fucking body temperature and, it, and then dispense your ginger ale according to your health. It's like you have COVID. No ginger ale for you. <laughs> and of course, uh, large popcorn, no gross butter. I'm excited to go back to the Hollywood Theater and get a Narragansett tall boy. Now ask me, do I really like Narragansett? No. But does it make me feel like Captain Quint when I drink it? Yeah. So that's my go-to. Do you like crush the can when you're done with it and throw it on the floor? And everybody gets so mad at me that I do that. Quiet and back. Right. Exactly. But yeah, it's I, mostly I just... miss the Alamo Draft House breakfast burrito when Lucy and oh I would go on a God. Sunday morning. Yeah, they're like seventeen or eighteen dollars, but god damn it, you're at the movies. God damn it, you're at the movies. That's the theme of this category. Um, it's a pleasure to be back, one and all. Um, we'll be talking to you again, I think, in under two weeks uh, for the 25th anniversary of The Rock. We're going to talk about the best ever Alcatraz movies, so you can start watching that right now if you like. Uh, now, what a pleasure to see you standing in a new apartment and to talk to you again. I can't wait. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around.
color on the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful. 